0: You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroides. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today, we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's taped conversations about the end of the Vietnam War in 1972 and 1973. Our guest again is Luke Nickter, professor of history at Texas A and M University, Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon White House tapes and founder of NixonTapes.org. Luke, welcome back.
1: Well, thanks for welcoming me back, Jonathan.
0: Let's start with let's start the story before the 1972 election. Uh, that year, President Nixon had embarked on the historic trip to China in February of 1972, and then two months later, he goes to the Soviet Union in May to sign the Salt and ABM treaties. Uh, the North Vietnamese launched an offensive against the South in March and April. Um, at this point before the election, overall, what is happening with negotiations uh, with the North Vietnamese to end, end this war?
1: Well, I think after a long period um, where there, there wasn't much happening, um, where it was um, a lot of struggles in 70 and 71, uh, it was the spring of 72 period where, where things started getting going again in terms of negotiations with Vietnam. And you know how much of that uh, had to do with um, North Vietnamese fatigue, how much of that had to do with Nixon's other overtures to China and the Soviet Union. I mean, it, it's hard to tease these things out. It, certainly, they were all related in the constellation of activities and just things that were going on during that year. But I mean, the short answer to your question is, you know, after the after the East, the Easter Offensive was was pretty rough on the North Vietnamese. It was a it was a decisive victory for um, uh, for the Americans and the South Vietnamese, and I think it's widely regarded, um, you know, by those in government and by scholars as being the, the key event that that kind of, you know, the, the final straw that, that broke the camel's back and um, um, caused the North Vietnamese to, to once again become serious about peace talks.
0: Let's listen to the first audio tape of September ninth, 1972, uh, this is about a month before the presidential, um, Nixon's presidential re election. Um, this is President Nixon, Dr. Kissinger, and Chief of, Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman in the Oval Office. See, Luke, let's unpack this conversation a bit. Um, Nixon and Kissinger way getting a deal done before the 1972 presidential election. Um, it seems that Nixon and Kissinger can conclude that it doesn't matter. Uh, do you think, though, this was an important consideration?
1: Well, I think there's no question that, that politics is, is, you know, th- these are people who, who operate at a very high level politically um, and do so... Intrinsically, I mean, it doesn't even have to be said. Um, so, you know, whether they discuss the role of politics or not on the tapes, obviously there's a role here for politics. Um, you know, at the same time, I think, I think what they're saying is, you know, this is, this is now, as you say, a month before, five, six weeks before the election. Um, you know, Labor Day kind of used to traditionally, <clears throat> traditionally kick off the, the campaigns. And so, we're you know, we're three, four weeks into the campaign now. It's clear who Nixon's um, opponent is, Senator George McGovern. We're well after the conventions that, that nominated um, uh, in, in both parties, uh, the candidates. Um, <clears throat> so I think Nixon can speak pretty confidently about, you know, where does he sit in the polls? Um, what are the, what's the messaging of, of, McGovern, of the McGovern side? And uh, frankly, I think what Nixon's saying is we don't have a lot of competition. I mean, we don't if McGovern is, is, is taking a view that the United States ought to surrender and pull out of Vietnam you know, unilaterally, uh, then what Nixon's saying is, you know, hey, that gives me a lot of room. Um, there's a lot of room for error. You know, the, the agreement itself doesn't have to be perfect, and there's not really going to be much of a domestic political consequence for me. That's my reading of that part of it. So you know, I, I think that um, if politics is an important part, but I think more than that, I mean, this has been a, a goal now of Nixon's for four years to end this war. Um, and so while politics is, is, you know, one of the most immediate hurdles sitting in front of him uh, on this track, um, you, know, I, I, you know, earlier writings um, suggest that, you know, Nixon really thought, you know, in my first term, um, I've got to make sure I'm out of this war. You know, I can't have a second term and let the war go into in that, you know, second four years. So I think there's a lot of different thoughts here, and it's hard to know exactly what he thinks about all of them. Um, but you know, there's a, that's that's kind of my reaction to this particular segment of tape.
0: It, are the North Vietnamese negotiators putting the administration on a timetable to get this deal done?
1: This is a tough one. You know, we we simply as Americans do not know uh, nearly as much about the North or South Vietnamese as we do about you know. I, I mean, here here we are. We're We're trying to grasp at what, you know, what we have tapes of American leaders, and we're trying to parse words and figure out um, what's really meant and what's really being said, and we don't have, you know, any kind of pieces of evidence uh, like this, you know, for the Vietnamese side, north or south. So, I mean, the the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, are falling into their pattern, you know, as they did in '68 of kind of launching some kind of peace peace initiative um... just before an american presidential election knowing that that's when you know many americans will be focused on these issues so you know i i mean my take there is uh, i mean to me the facts are they they were hit pretty hard by the easter offensive that did cause them to negotiate but i think one of the major weaknesses of the united states both in sixty eight as well here in seventy two is he, is out of the three major parties, the North, the South, and the U.S. Only one of those really wants to get out, and then the war, and that's the United States. Um, I mean, the, the North has been fighting uh, almost continual war since the end of World War II, um, and even during during World War, even include the Japanese, and then the French, and then the South. Uh, they're not really in a hurry. I mean, yeah, they are tired. But, I mean, they're they're not going to get – after fighting for decades, they're not going to just quit here unless the terms are obviously in their favor. Otherwise, it would make the last 30 years of effort look foolish. And the South, I mean, this is their homeland. I mean, they're fighting, you know, to the last man. So the, the North and the South, I mean, my take on this, the U.S., I think, never fully came to terms in 68 or 72 or any other time with the fact that we were the ones who wanted the war to end. Uh, Not nearly as much, you know, the other sides, as much as they lost, far more than the 58,000 that we lost. They lost in the millions, not to mention civilians and the destruction of their homeland. Um, So I think this was always going to be a tough thing for us to get a deal that was good for all sides when most of the other sides, a majority of the other sides, didn't want out as much as we did.
0: Let's talk about the deal a little bit. Kissinger mentions a statement of principles uh, with the North Vietnamese that includes the following: a prisoner release, ceasefire, withdrawal, and committee of reconciliation. Uh, can you talk about these specific principles and what do they exactly mean
1: Sure, and, you know I think here is a case where this tape suggests to me that um, the Americans have learned a little bit in seventy two that maybe they didn't know in sixty eight I think in 68, uh, there was kind of no such lack of optimism. You know, the Johnson White House led talks, led by Harriman and, and Vance, I think really hoped they could get a deal, you know, by Election Day. In, and really, they didn't get moving until about mid-October, um, and something a you know, very tight time period. And we're talking three weeks or so. And here, this is Kissinger in late September saying, you know, we don't really have enough time to get a deal um, and get all the documents signed. You know, we can get kind of a verbal agreement, a gentleman's agreement. You know, we can basically come to agreement on the points that will be in the eventual uh, signed agreement, but there just isn't time. So I think, you know, we're taking a much slower pace this time and not getting our hopes up after four more years of war. Um, but, the, you know, the, the main points have been the ones that have mostly been around for a few years. You know, uh, how many POWs do we have? What shape are they? Where are they at? How do we get them home, and on what timetable? You know, how many days after the agreed upon uh, signing date do uh, the POWs have to be returned? Um, a ceasefire. You know, what does that mean? Uh, you know, restoration of the DMZ, no rocketing attacks on, on southern cities by the North, um, combat troops uh, pulled out. Either one-sided. Uh, you know, we're talking about a, a unilateral withdrawal, a mutual withdrawal. According to what timetable? Who goes first? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and a Committee of Reconciliation is the idea. It would be sort of an internationally supervised piece that would make sure that all sides were following, you know, the thing they agreed to, the the document. So these are are the basic points that have been in flux. And the only other one that's not mentioned in your list um, that's been a problem since the start is the National Liberation Front. That is uh, communist soldiers already in the South. Uh, For the longest time, the North insisted on toppling the two government and bringing the communists into the government either completely or at least as part of a coalition with the the South. And um, that's the one thing uh, that's different in 68 to 72 is that Nixon and Kissinger are able to make progress on that particular issue, at least not to make that part of the agreement, Um, and stand by it too a little tougher. Um, But, you know, these are the basic issues, and the key is just, you know, how do we make them work and what sequence, you know, how many days, you know, how do we define success You know, that's that's the the remaining steps they need to work on.
0: The Statement of Principles also includes the stipulation that Thieu not be overthrown. Uh, The President and Dr. Kissinger are are a little worried about Thieu's future and the political leadership in South Vietnam at this point. Uh, Could you tell us why?
1: Well, I I mean, President Thieu's domestic political situation has been tough for, um, I mean, it was tough in 68, going back to 68. Uh, you know, anytime he does anything, he, he's you know he's got hawks and doves, just like uh, you know President Johnson and President Nixon has hawks and doves. You know, uh, criticizing him from the right, criticizing him from the left. You know, anytime Tito does anything that looks like weakness, um, you know, there's talk of a leadership challenge. There, there's talk of coups. Actually, um, he's uh, he's been threatened by assassination numerous times. So you know, has got a whole range of his own political problems that we Americans don't seem to pay much attention to because well, we're so focused on our own. So, you know, Tu has an unstable situation. I mean, if he uh, goes along with some kind of agreement and his hawks and his, nation, his, uh, his national security council uh, and his national assembly don't agree, um, he could be toppled. And if he's toppled by his own people uh, and it brings together, say, a, a much more hawkish leader, um, you know, or a much more dovish leader, you know, that makes peace all that much more precarious. So, you know, this is a, this is a difficult balancing act um, between, you know, you're managing this. Is, obviously, we, we think as Americans of this primarily as a, a foreign policy issue to end a, a war, um, but there are domestic consequences here. There are domestic consequences in Saigon, and there are domestic consequences in Hanoi. You know, so each side has its own balancing act, while the considerations of the negotiating table also have to be balanced.
0: Let's continue the story two weeks later. This is Nixon Kissinger and military assistant Alexander Haig in the executive office building on October 12, 1972. Look, why at this point is Dr. Kissinger so confident that the president has gone three for three for diplomatic achievements with China, Russia, and the Vietnam War?
1: Well, this three for three thing is kind of, um, I mean, it must, it's, it's clearly some kind of an organizing um, method uh, of the foreign policy achievements for that year because, you know, you hear it a couple of other times, that exact phrase, um, or, you know, talk like this, um, I don't recall anything like it after China, which was the first one of three achievements, but I recall another conversation after the Soviet summit where either Nixon or Kissinger says to the other, "Well, you've got two out of three, uh, meaning just Vietnam is left to do this year. And then also after the election, um, and yeah, uh, after the election, they talk about three for three again, and, and Nixon says to Haldeman, you know, this would be something like there's never been another year like it. You know, it'd be, it would be a great, a great book. You know, someone should write is kind of, you know, three for three. And so that was kind of the inspiration. You know, when, when I heard that tape and had time to reflect on it, you know, that was kind of the inspiration for me to do that first Nixon tapes book with Douglas Brinkley was to kind of really fashion it around, you know, three for three you know, to try to keep other things out of it as much as possible, to keep Watergate out of it, that kind of comes later. Um, but, you know, I thought, well, he's right. You know, And that kind of became the idea of Bill Sapphire's book before the fall, um, but he wasn't really involved in foreign policy. So this idea, this organizing principle of three for three had been around, you know, at least kind of throughout 72, at least since since the return from China. they They started getting them thinking, like, wow, we just had this great breakthrough, maybe we can get two more, you know, all in one, one year. And so the two were done, and so Kissinger here is confident that, you know, we according to this audio we listened to, we, we don't have an agreement yet, but we have it kind of an agreement in principle, again, a handshake, a gentleman's agreement. Um, and at this point, um, maybe, you know, I mean, at least slightly prematurely, because there's not an agreement yet. Um, Kissinger says, well, at least at least in principle, you know we we now have the third out of three, the three for three.
0: Kissinger says on this audio tape, the deal we got, Mr. President, is so far better than anything we've dreamt of. I mean, it was absolutely totally hard line with them. What kind of agreement did Kissinger get?
1: Well, I, I, in my view, um, you know we're still learning about uh, those conversations he's having in Paris. You know, he's just returned from a very long negotiating session in Paris. That's why, at the very beginning of this audio, the first thing Nixon says in that clip is, "Well, it's been a long day." Is because you know he's had kind of a full day in Paris. And then he returns to Washington to brief Nixon on the day. Um, you know, the, the I I believe you know the most reliable record of those talks um, were National Security Agency wiretaps uh, that were going on. Those are just starting to be released. Um, wiretaps on the talks, wiretaps, as I understand it, even at the CIA's safe houses and other locations where um, the private talks took. Um, so those are starting to come out. So, you know, even in future years, we're still going to be figuring out, um, you know, were things going as well as we've been told? You know, because other tapes, other Nixon tapes, you know, Kissinger says to Nixon – um, our biggest problem right now is that everything I'm giving them, every condition, they're approving it so quickly. I don't know what else to ask for. And so I think if these wiretap records come out in the future, they'll help to to bear out whether that really was what was happening in Paris. Because, you know, here we are listening to this audio, you know, Nixon coming back. I mean, Kissinger coming back from the talks, but we don't have a similar kind of evidence from the talks themselves. So I think Kissinger is optimistic, according to other tapes, because he feels as though you know every condition we're, the United States is placing before the North, you know they're they're accepting it. I mean they're sort of writing it into the agreement right away. Um, so you know they're not insisting on Tuesday's overthrow. They're not setting a lot of conditions on a withdrawal. Um, I mean they're they're pretty easy negotiating partners. And certainly um, you know, we're two weeks out from the election. Um, that, that has to play a – well, we're, we're about a, mu- a little less than a month out from the election. That surely plays a role. I mean, the Americans can see that clearly. The North Vietnamese can see that clearly. So this is another factor that we, we don't know from this audio, as interesting as these audio tapes are, is how much of this is the North just saying, you know, we're just going to agree to everything. And, you know, they're going to pull out and then we'll just do what we want. So, I mean, these kinds of things are not addressed, you know, by, by the sources of archival evidence, including tapes. Um, we have their words, we have their actions, but we don't always have their intentions.
0: Nixon says what somewhat humorously in response to Kissinger on this tape, um, Al, um, Al Haig, I'm going to ask you, Al, because you're too prejudiced, Henry. You're so prejudiced to the peace camp that I can't trust you. Don't you think so, Al? Uh, Alexander Haig responds, responds, yes, sir. Um... Are Nixon and Haig skeptical?
1: Well, this this is, Nixon does this. He, he does, on the tapes, he does this a number of times. He kind of ribs Kissinger um, after he, because, I mean, at this point, he's, he can, he's handled on negotiations for China, um, for the Soviets, for the Vietnamese. And so, you know, it's a way of Nixon kind of reminding Kissinger, you know, you're from Harvard, you're from, you know, all those guys who prefer peace and they want us to get out and... So I think it's part genuine, but it's part kind of you know humorous ribbing uh, of Kissinger. Um, but it is true, you know, in the final approach to the peace, these final months, um, in part because there's so much activity. I mean, I mean, imagine this: you've got you've got to negotiate simultaneously in Paris. Sometimes you have to go to Hanoi. Sometimes you have to go to Saigon. Uh, you have got to deal with Washington. You got to brief Nixon. You got to brief the Hill. And there's a lot of different simultaneous things going on. And so Haig comes along in part to share the burden, you know, with Kissinger of, of all these various negotiations, but also because, I mean, Haig's reputation was more of the military guy, the hardliner. And so sometimes, as we get in the final months here, when, when Kissinger and Haig split up and go different places to handle different parts of negotiations, you start seeing Haig more and more being the one who sent to Saigon um, because I think the view of Nixon was that, the Saigon government that you like to sit across from, from a military guy and like to hear it straight. Um, like Kissinger, deal with the North Vietnamese and the communists, um, but uh, you know, Haig was considered to be a little more hard line and somebody that um, South Vietnamese military could look eyeball to eyeball, you know, and be on the same page. So it's, a, I'd say, it's a little, your question, go, to go back to that, it's a little bit of each kind of rib, rib, little ribbing, it's a reminder of Kissinger's background. It's a division of labor with all that's going on. Um, but I think it is true that, that the fellow military and our allies saw Haig to be a little more hardline.
0: Was he effective at all in negotiating with you Well,
1: as far as we know, um, based on the available records, um, you know, Tew's ultimate problem, I think, in 72 is very much like in 68. Uh, I think he felt pressured to come to a peace agreement that, it wasn't really in his interests. I mean, it was again. It was the Americans primarily who wanted to get out of the war. Uh, the South Vietnamese weren't going anywhere. No, the North Vietnamese weren't going anywhere. Um, and I think Thieu's objective was was probably something along the lines of, "I need to find a way to let the Americans out of the war, but not to sever our ties or to sever their support of me." And so, we, if we need to call it something else, if we need to to you know, play a game of words. I think, so I think Chew came to a point where he was willing to let the Americans out um, of the war, but he wanted to make sure that American support continued because that's, that's how he would survive once the Americans were gone.
0: About two weeks later, on October 26, 1972, Dr. Kissinger, during a press, press conference, said, "Peace is at hand, um, as we'll see the war continued on through the end of the year, um, what did Kissinger mean when he said peace was at hand?
1: I've always been curious about this because, you know, Nixon sometimes is in the grandstanding and slogans, but I don't get that take that this was a Nixon idea, you know, peace is at hand. Um, shortly after this after this press conference, um, Kissinger goes to the Oval Office and briefs Nixon. I remember Kissinger is once again returned from a long negotiating session in Paris, and he's very, I recall he's hoarse, and he asked Nixon for some uh chicken soup or consommé or so it's kind of a funny conversation but you know Colson then comes in after that Chuck Colson and he and Nixon they say something like well you know Henry said peace was at hand well until it wasn't so i have always been curious about this because it i don't i don't think it was necessary you know to use that phrase to 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 turn the, the agreement into a lightning rod a political lightning rod and this is a days prior to the election so I've never been clear on the origins of, of the phrase and why it was used. Um, but I think, you know, Kissinger's point to the, to the press, um, and so he used the phrase to a, to a packed um, press conference. He told Nixon, and we, and we have, you can find the audio or the video of, this, of what he said to the press, what he said to Nixon afterwards was they were hanging from the rafters. Well, of course they were. You know, this was a big deal. And so this is, again, Kissinger's way of saying to the press, um you know we don't have i can't show you a text but we've agreed in principle
0: why ultimately did the war continue on through the, after the election
1: well I, I mean it was a variety of factors and the, the perhaps the biggest one is that you know, t u um, in 72 as in 68 four years before you know ultimately um balked hesitated um, and by hesitating to go along, um, allow the North Vietnamese to say, "Well, it doesn't look like your side uh, you are, are are on the same page." And so once you know the South kind of balks, then the North pulls out. And so something similar. Uh, again, there there are parallels here between '68 as well and '72. Um, you know, the closer to the election, while the Americans are feverishly trying to get a deal before the election, while uh, you know the American people are are focused on this issue. Uh, as I say, the Vietnamese are just as aware of the American political timing playing a factor in this. Uh, and uh, in 72, as in 68, too, hesitated. Uh, the North seized a propaganda initiative and uh, decided not to go along.
0: Now we're after the election. Let's listen to the next telephone conversation between Nixon and Kissinger on November 18, 1972.
2: I wanted to uh, mention and, and check with you, Says we now, we had a phone call from bunker. we haven't had the actual message yet, saying that now apparently the South Vietnamese are beginning to kick over the traces again. Oh, Christ. And I believe that we just have to continue now and get the best agreement we can. Yeah. yeah. And then face them with it afterwards. How are they kicking it over? Well, they've apparently submitted a memorandum to him. But he he just said the news is not good, and their ambassador here has also raised some questions. With Sullivan. It's their old pattern. What they always do is uh, they first read what you give them, then they raise a few technical objections. And then they just keep escalating it. <laughs> Well, shall I send him another letter? No, I think we now have to wait, Mr. President, until we get a, till we see at least what's going to happen in Paris. Mm -hmm. And once we have the text of an agreement in Paris, we'll uh, we'll have a new situation. So Bunker says that uh, they're kicking over the traces and just being unreasonable as hell. Is that it? True. That seems to be the case. But I don't, uh, we can't delay the negotiation, and we can't tell Hanoi that we're having trouble. No, sure. We're going to play it like an accordion. All right. But the other when you really come down to it, though, I just can't see how Chu's got any other choice. God damn it. Uh, we've told him we're doing everything we can, and that's going to be it. Right.
0: Look, what exactly are the South Vietnamese, specifically President Tu, uh, rejecting? Objecting to? Well,
1: I, I mean, imagine being a, a South Vietnamese military leader, or being a, um, a on the hawkish side of one of Tu's advisors. You know, here you are. You're you're faced with hostile actions, hostile takeover by the North, uh, presumably supported by two much larger hostile powers, the Chinese and the, and the Russians. Um, you know, either, I think there's almost a kind of parallel with like an Israel, you know, being supported by, you know, on all sides by by well-armed uh, opponents. Um, and, you know, here you are, and you're being asked to sign an agreement that releases the United States from the war. I mean, under what conditions are you going to be for that? And so I think this just underlines the fact that, you know, T.U. had a very complicated, difficult domestic political issue. And imagine being T.U. And, and, and having to... Uh, argue to these hawks that, that, you know, don't worry, don't worry, you know, I'll make sure they continue to support us. I mean, it's going to be almost impossible to, get, to convince your hawks. And so it's fine, you know, to negotiate with, with Tew, but even in our own system, you know, a president can propose treaties, but you still need Senate, a Senate to ratify a treaty. And so it's one thing to get Tew's, um approval, but it's another thing entirely to get the approval of his National Security Council, his cabinet, you know, and his National Assembly. And so I think, I think uh, I mean, from the documentation that I've seen, I think the, the South Vietnamese were just uh, against the whole idea, you know, of a peace agreement. Like, I mean, if you're getting shelled and you live in Saigon, and you had a family who were injured during the Tet Offensive, or uh, you know, in '68, and you've lost family members, and you think peace agreement, there's no peace here. Uh, what what you see and live and breathe every day is the opposite of peace. And so I, I just think, it, you know, Americans were, were, in 68 and 72, there, there was almost no chance of getting any kind of an agreement, is, is my take. I think the U.S. wanted this done because we, we ourselves needed to get out of the war for domestic political opinion. And so I think probably uh, T's people uh, had a problem with, with just about every aspect of, of what we were proposing to them.
0: Kissinger says here we can't tell Hanoi that we're having trouble with the South Vietnamese. Nixon responds, "No, sir." Kissinger says they're going to play it like an accordion. Um, how do you think the North Vietnamese would take advantage of the South's objections?
1: Well, now imagine you're a North Vietnamese negotiator in Paris, and you've had Kissinger come in, and you know, in the North, you've given everything you're authorized to give in this agreement. Maybe you've gone even a little too far. I've had to explain that to, him, to your government in Hanoi. You know, Kissinger's come in. You're tired. He's tired. Um, and, you know, he said, you must give up this right now because we're ready to sign. We're ready to agree. You have to go along. You're the problem. You're the one. And then all of a sudden you see the South is balking. Well, if you're sitting, if you're the North and you're saying, well, um, maybe we don't need to give so much anymore. Um, so you perceive an advantage in the negotiations Maybe that last thing or two that you went along with or promised, uh, now you don't need to, because now you see how urgent it is for the United States to get some kind of an agreement. So I think, you know, this just deals cards right into the North Vietnamese hands when they see that the U.S. and the South might not completely be on the same page.
0: Nixon says, uh, when you really come down to it, I just can't see how Thieu has got any other choice. Uh, we've told him we're doing everything we can, and that's going to be it. Um, why, does, why do you think Nixon believes that uh, Tew doesn't have a choice but to accept this?
1: I think it's just political considerations. It's, uh, Nixon, that's Nixon's way of saying um, Tew has never had a friendlier American government in power than the one he's got right now. Um, he's never going to get a better situation than right now, uh, that the American people uh, will demand that the US get out the American Congress will demand it uh that you know if he misses this opportunity as flawed as it is for him to to, to uh, agree to peace future opportunities are only going to be you know less favorable than the one he has right now uh and possibly with a less favorable American government in power so i think you know it's just a political consideration that as much as he didn't like the medicine that Americans were giving him uh, the fact was is that if you wait longer, odds are it'll be even worse.
0: Let's listen to the next conversation of December twenty eighth of nineteen seventy two. This is again President Nixon and Doctor Kissinger.
3: Okay, so this is another spectacular performance. Yeah. Well, hell, we don't know whether it's that. A terrific courage to do it.
4: Yeah. Well, at least it it's it the boil, didn't it?
3: President, anything else? would have been worse in the long run. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the guys who are now saying, well, why do we do it with B-52s? <laughs> all the people who are saying if you did it with b 3s they'd be okay.
4: The point is, as we know, we couldn't do it with anything for B-52s because, God damn it, there's nothing else that can fly at this time of year.
3: Mr. President, within 10 days, you got these guys to this table which no other method could have done. Makes the weekend papers and the excitement is going to die. Well, it'll make the news magazines too. Yeah. They'll open up for this, don't worry. Mike Bundy called me last night. He said he's going to write a letter. out and hung up on it.
4: Them. now then then do we uh, uh, at what point do we inform saigon that we are going to proceed in that way or that we have proceeded in that way well,
3: i think this thing is going to happen just before your inauguration i i would still send Agnew and Hagar out there to give them a safe saving way off <laughs>
4: suppose he doesn't that's i then suppose i just
3: problem. proceed and sign the document
0: this is President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger talking about Linebacker 2, um, the bombing of uh, North Vietnam after the election. Um, what went into Nixon's just decision to restart bombing of North Vietnam Vietnam and Linebacker 2?
1: Well, here you get another significant uh, phrase that Nixon uses every once in a while, prick the boil. And he uses prick the boil a few times throughout the Nixon tapes. And one of the times I can recall that he talked about why was that? It was important long before this. As I, as I recall, he was, said something on the tapes like, "You know, when I was a young vice president in 1953, I sat in these rooms as Eisenhower struggled with how to end the war. The peace talks were stalemated, and what Nixon suggests in a different tape was what he learned from Eisenhower in those opening months of his presidency in '53 was that, you know, when the talks are stalemated and you're you know, you're 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 moving, you're advancing and and taking a hill, and then you're losing it. You're falling back, and you're just going kind of back and forth and back and forth for a long period of time. You know, as the as Cor- the Korean negotiations were stalemated for for you know two and a half years almost. Uh, what Nixon said was finally Eisenhower pricked the boil. You know, and he had to do something, to, a, a kind of shock and awe thing. You know, to to bring the sides back to the negotiating table. You have to be willing, even in the course of peace talks, Nixon said to sort of do something brutal, um, and so that was Nixon's Christmas bombing, his Operation Linebacker II, that when you know we're trying to figure out what's, what does Saigon really want, what does Hanoi really want, in the midst of that, Nixon does something brutal um, by launching the fiercest bombing campaign of the entire Vietnam War, and uh, it starts um, you know the, around the 14th of the middle of December. And here's right, you know, after it's over, after about ten days, um, and Kissinger's saying it worked, you know, it's your, it's your great thing, you know, what it, what it did was, um, I mean, it was it was really unnecessary. I mean, from a military standpoint, I mean, there there weren't any important targets left, um, but what it was, it provided a kind of shock and awe, you know, politically for the North Vietnamese to show far how Nixon how far Nixon was willing to go to regain the momentum. And the, the outcome of this is that the North has just announced that they're willing to return to the negotiating table. And it's this round of negotiating that actually produces the agreement that should have been wrapped up a few months before. Um, and so this call, this call that we just heard takes place you know, right you know, sort of in the end zone, so to speak, you know, of Nixon's final bombing drive. Um, and uh, we're about to go into several days of intense talks that will produce the agreement.
0: After after linebacker two, did the Nixon administration get better terms on this agreement than before the election?
1: I, I've never looked at all the details and kind of and compared them to what they had in October. Um, but I mean, I think the Nixon administration got what they wanted. I mean, it got POWs within sixty days. Um, it gave a, It probably gave a little more to the South. I mean, in terms of reassurances, you know, one of the one of the big um, sticky points in the agreement was a clause that permitted um, uh, sort of the repair and replacement of military equipment but that no side should introduce new equipment or personnel so in other words there should not be fresh deployments of soldiers uh... there should not be you know new tanks and new you know new planes and new new equipment but it's okay to repair and to replace equipment that becomes defunct um, now that's where some fudging can happen you know, on all sides But you know, this was what T was able to get out of this final agreement, so that he could go back to his people and say, you know, the American support will continue. It'll just continue under another name. Um, You know, they're they're not going to be officially at war, um, but this is this support is going to help us to survive.
0: Kissinger says in this conversation that economic pressures needed to be put on Saigon. What did he mean by that?
1: Well, economic aid, um, military and non-military and humanitarian aid, has had forever or had always been both an accelerator and a brake in relations between the United States and South Vietnam. Um, so when, when the South is doing something that you like, you increase the aid, military and non-military aid. Um, and when you're unhappy, you threaten to pull it back. You threaten to pull back uh whether it be uh, financing for South Guinea's military, whether it be a trade agreement, whether it be um, you know industrial goods i mean it's a it's a full range of I mean the scope of our um, of our foreign aid to uh, Saigon is about as vast as it can be. and so this is this has always been probably the most important lever the United States has had to get better behavior out of the Saigon government is either you know to offer to increase it or to threaten to decrease it. And so that's what Kissinger's talking about here is that you know we can we can we can suggest to Chew that we might make cuts and maybe that'll you know help him to be more serious and to you know hey hey let, uh, let's get peace let's let's get peace let's take advantage of the moment and so I think Nixon and Kissinger are thinking of just about every uh, final card they can possibly play and and uh, modifying the foreign aid to Saigon is one of those.
0: Does he, does Tew and the South Vietnamese ultimately come to the table in negotiations?
1: They do. Um, they, they, they do. I think get probably the best agreement they they could have gotten. Um, you know, it's still, I say that, but it's still you know t- terribly flawed. Um, you know, I, I think for the North. They were looking at the Laos agreement in sixty two and seeing ways that they could cheat and hedge. And yeah, you know, I mean, for the north, um you know the main thing is just to get the, have the Americans go home ten thousand miles. And when the Americans go home ten thousand miles, um, you know we can we can do what we want in some cases. So, I think it probably was the best agreement possible, but you know once the the die was cast after the sixty two Laos negotiations, we we were going to have that problem. Of making sure the North adhered to it, um, you know, arguably the U.S. and the South also didn't keep their their part of it. Uh, Nixon had his own domestic problems, you know, with Congress and an American electorate that just was tired of war. Um, so, in a, you know, and the agreement didn't include the whole area. I mean, the whole the, Laos had also been threatened by communist takeover. Cambodia had also been threatened by communist takeover and would be taken over. Thailand faced such threats. And so, even to make an agreement, I think even getting the best agreement we could and, and and allowing it to focus just on Vietnam, it really needed to focus on all of what was known as French Indochina. That was really because the, 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 that, that was the the vacuum that was created when the French withdrew, and which you know the Communists moved in as quickly as they could. So you know, in the end, it was probably the best um, thing we could have gotten. Uh, it was essential that Nixon got something. Um, but, uh, I, I, think it would, does not take a Vietnam expert to arrive at the conclusion that, uh, it was flawed, you know, even before the ink was dried.
0: In a podcast earlier this month, I asked, um, Ambassador Winston Lord about whether Nixon and Kissinger believed that South Vietnam, Vietnam had a chance to succeed against the North or did the administration abandon the South in favor of political expediency, the so-called theory of a decent interval. Uh, what is your opinion on this?
1: I think the idea of a decent interval theory, as I've said before, is just silly. Um, I mean, this idea that um, in the ebb and flow of a war that goes on many years, that we've always had one strategy that we're going to adhere to and not modify. You know, the idea that Nixon and Kissinger always thought, well, you know, we just can't let communists take over happen for two years or three years or four years or five years. Um, I think the Nixon tapes show the decent interval theory, theory is silly because there are some days that, that the war's not going very well at all, and Nixon and Kissinger don't care about any interval, except the time just to get out of there and get our POWs out. So I think Nixon and Kissinger react like human beings, not like people who adhere to a rigid theory. I think, you know, that there are weeks they're up when the casualty reports are down and things are going well, and there are weeks they're down, probably like the reactions of any president during any war in human history. So I think, I think that part is flawed. Um, you know, I think where I come down is is the fact that um, um, you know it, it's it's very complex. Um, you know, I think Nixon knew he had to get out. One side, the U.S. wanted to get out much more, you know, than the other sides. Um, I think we still don't totally understand the role of China and the Soviet Union, and of course their archives are not open you know, nearly the way that ours are. So, I, you know, I think the idea that the whole uh, we can put a bow on the whole story with some tidy theory. I think that explains some actions, but there's a lot of actions that I can't explain.
0: Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic is the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to the end of the Vietnam War in 1972 and 1973. Luke, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure.
0: Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda.